Welcome to Winning the Game of Life. Known as Jungle Man at the poker table, Dan Cates has gone from being the bag boy at McDonald's with no friends and a dead-end future to winning over $11 million in online poker, over $7 million in live tournaments, and is a World Series of Poker champion. He has found fame, fortune, been to incredible places all over the globe, and connected with some amazing people. It looks like Dan has won the game of life, but that is not the way he sees it. Dan sees winning as doing his part to help everyone in the world win. He knows he can't do it alone, though. He knows it's going to take a collective effort with anyone that wants to see the same thing. Join us each week as Dan starts the conversation to do just that. On the show, Dan will interview incredible individuals that have made the impossible possible. Those that have won game of life and those that want to help others win as well hit subscribe and follow dan's journey on instagram at the dan cates let's explore anyone and anything that can help make this world a better place increasing the odds of us all winning the game of life and now here's your host dan cates all right guys what's up it's me and it's a dan on dan uh dan and dan's double dan situation uh he's got the dan's got the double up drive too there's, there's a lot of doubling going on and uh maybe uh yeah something like that there's two dans in this picture and uh dan smith has won over 38 million in live tournament winnings i'm sure millions more in cash games and he's even raised millions more for his charity which has been doubled to add even millions more that have been going gone to charity. That's a lot of millions, guys. Maybe 100 million. It sounds like more than 100 million. Dan, what's up? That was a great intro. Uh, I am wonderful, and thank you for having me. I'm happy to have you. Dan, uh, you know, a little, I don't know if you knew this little fact. We've got something else that's in common besides the fact that we're, both of our names are Dan's and we have a charity and played poker. Uh, we both went to the University of Maryland. I uh, have read that you had a chess scholarship which i something i didn't know existed i didn't know there was a thing when you, like a chess team uh you're like raised money for maryland or no that doesn't make uh, sense. go ahead so have you heard of umbc university of maryland baltimore county yes i have that's where i got the chess scholarship to there's at the time there were two schools you can get a chess scholarship for um one was UMBC and one was UTD, University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, so I got the scholarship to UMBC, but by my, in my senior year of high school, I had a big year at online poker. I won a couple hundred thousand. And I was just like, why would I take a scholarship? I'll just pay the money and go to University of Maryland and go party. And I did one semester of it and I failed all of my classes, and I didn't think it was that fun. So I took a break and then never went back. Hmm. All right, well, we both dropped out also. I, uh, I got bubbled, kind of. I was determined to graduate, um, and I had to like retake a class twice. Uh, Which class? Game theory. <laughs> Did you just not do the work, or were you? Just not good at it. Uh, I think I was actually pretty good at it. I didn't study very much at all. And then the second time, it was quite a bit harder for some reason. 
And it just had nothing to do with poker. I think it was actually kind of interesting remembering what it was about. Uh, but yeah, I just didn't really do it. I had a similar thing where in high school I took calculus and statistics and did very well. And then at Maryland, I had to like take them again because I, for whatever reason, like my high school thing didn't transfer. And then I did worse. And then I did a semester of college in New Jersey and I did even worse. This Like, so <laughs> retaking the same class, I think some of it was just like putting in less and less effort. And I was a terrible student. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's easy to think that you don't need to study and that kind of thing. But one thing I do remember is that the high school equivalences, college classes uh, are a lot easier than, than the actual college classes for all sorts of reasons. Um, and also another thing, um, that I remember is I don't remember much of anything from any of those classes. <laughs> so it doesn't seem like these things have worked that well. Yeah. I think the way that things are taught is kind of inefficient. My brother-in-law is a professional musician and he was considering getting a degree in music theory. Like, let's just say he's 40 years old, actually, plus or minus a couple. Um, he wants to study music theory, and he has to take an advanced math course. Like, at this point, he's a grown-up. He should be able to just, like, he doesn't need it to study music, but because he had to take, like, pre-calc or calculus or something, it's going to stop him from learning and the thing that he likes. Like, it's just inefficient. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think you're probably right. I think people are more and more, uh, realizing that the university system or getting a college degree is not really worth it anymore. And perhaps they should reconsider, um, a life of, uh, professional gambling maybe, or something along those lines. I'm not really sure. I wouldn't be so quick to say that a degree isn't I'm not going to just like out and out say going to college is stupid. I think it shouldn't be automatically like the path for everyone. And I think the idea of a gap year makes sense and having some idea maybe of what you want to study. Mm -hmm. I am not super confident like being an 18 year old kid pursuing say like professional poker would be a good idea right now. Like when we were playing, you could play small stakes and pretty quickly like make decent money if we had to play like $1, $2, you think we would just be like crushing and making a bunch of money right now? Um, that is a very good point about professional poker. I still think that the, well, it's really hard to say, but if you were going to go into casinos, for example, um, I would just still say, to be honest, that it's a pretty good uh, situation, but maybe I'm just naive. I just think, uh, I just think that compared to, Compared to a lot of, uh, if someone doesn't have any idea of what they want to do in life and actually enjoys poker, I would just think that like compared to the competency level of something like professional sports or um, I don't know, just so many other things uh, that in all the school that you have to take and all the, the college loan fees and all this stuff that uh, professional poker is not a bad option if someone is very, very interested in it. Let's put it that way. 
I think you absolutely have to love it for it to be a sensible choice. And then even then I would be pretty skeptical and, or I would be like a very hesitant to recommend it unless a person just like absolutely loved it and you're putting in like 60 hour weeks because it's your favorite thing. But one, I'm not super familiar with like what the lower stakes scene is like. So I don't have a great idea and I don't feel super, I've never worked a job. So also in that area, I'm, I'm just shooting from the hip here. Yeah. Uh, jobs uh, really suck. Let's put it that way. If you don't like them, if you work like a, a day job or something, <coughs> uh, I have worked a job, a couple jobs um, being completely bored out of my mind and that kind of thing. But yeah, I do think you need to love poker. That just being the ultimate criteria. Um, what uh, got you interested in poker from chess? So I was the ninth best 16-year-old in America, which I think is a little bit less impressive than it sounds. But like I was the good, but not, I was a very good player, but I wasn't to make a, like a good living at it. <coughs> Excuse me, my allergies are killing me. Um, but to make, it was clear that even if I put in a lot of work, I could have made it like up one tier, but to make a good living, you have to go up like three tiers. Um, I kind of got to a point where I'd have a hard time getting better without putting in more work. And I saw like some of the best chess players in America. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me, but I feel better. Now. Um, I saw some of the best chess players in America. And they were struggling to pay food on the table or there'd be a situation where if, if they won a big game in the last round they would get say a seven thousand dollar prize and if they draw they'd get say like split like five hundred dollars a bunch of ways they all needed they would it's actually probably not that exact extreme but say like two thousand for a draw or eight thousand for a win so it's like obviously the plus ev thing is just to push your edge they were all so risk averse that they would take ties. So it was like, it was clear that there wasn't a huge future for me. Um, like the best case scenario wasn't that exciting. And then I saw poker on TV and I'm like, okay, chess is a very serious game. Everyone's trying their hardest to win. You see poker and it's a bunch of people who are like clearly not trying their best to perform a good strategy. And it's like, I don't know what this is, but I could beat these knuckleheads. <laughs> uh, yeah, thinking about the utility of the actual money made uh, to be like genius in chess. I mean, it's the same with many competitive sports. You have to be like some kind of relative genius in those fields to make a living. Um, or tennis. Huh? Like tennis. There's like a huge you have to get really far up until you're making a decent living. Like if you're the 500th best tennis player in the world, you're an exceptionally great talent and you're not living, like I don't think your life is that great. I believe you have to get top 100 from a former tennis player. Um, yeah, related to that, I mean, these days more and more uh, sorts of opportunities are opening up, but it's very hard. I, I still think it's very hard for people to, <coughs> to do that 
doesn't involve going to school, unfortunately. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, can you now, uh, like the things that people want to learn, does it involve school? More like pathways in life that don't necessarily involve school. Like, I mean, one would be to start a business, for example. Another would be to become someone's PA. Like you don't really need to have any school for that. And maybe you could find someone who pays good money. Uh, what are, what are some other ones? I think to be a good PA, you need to have like the life experience and how to deal with things. Like I've had plenty of bad assistants. And then I think there is, there could be good pathways from school. In some cases, like maybe there's something that you find interesting that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten turned onto if you hadn't discovered it in school. Um, or like the connections that you make in school could be the people that you do business with. Mm -hmm. And I, I try not to speak too much in like generalities, like different things for different people, though maybe being a little bit less inclined to say spend $50,000 a year on school, unless your family is like very wealthy, maybe community colleges. Like as a kid, I definitely never considered community college or going to a state school in New Jersey. And maybe it would have just been a more practical choice than spending 40,000 a year for Maryland, which is like a fine, but not great school, you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, long story short, it seems really complicated. Um, we're not, I, I don't think we're going to solve it on this podcast, but uh, let's go to the poker. Um, did you jump right into tournament poker? I have played a bit of everything. Um, I very early on, I started playing sit and goes. Um, I had good results playing mid stakes, no limit many years ago, like my junior year of high school playing three, six, I made $30,000 two months in a row, which was huge money for me. Um, in 2012, I had my breakout year and I won player of the year. Uh, and then I just, at that point, I realized um, I was playing 100K tournaments with guys who were folding good hands in the big blind to raises with ante. So they didn't understand pot odds, who never bet more than half the pot. And just like, it seemed like the average person I was playing with kind of just conceptually had no idea how to play poker. And of course there were some good players, but 100K tournaments I thought were like unbelievably soft. And I was playing heads up on the internet as well. And I remember playing Doug Polk at 5'10". And we played and he kind of kicked my butt and we, we had dinner afterwards and just like we, we ate sushi, we talked about like the match. And it's just like, huh, this is a guy who plays $5, $10 heads up. Or I could play 100K against these guys who are folding suited hands in the big blind to my button raise, you know? Um, that was kind of a turning point for me, but I would play, if I could play big cash games, I always would be excited about it. I also did just really like that okay, you want to play the 100K tournament? 
it shows up, you show up at 2 p.m. on Thursday, anyone could play. Uh, playing big cash games is very challenging to get into the games, you know? Like to play yeah. some of the biggest games. I don't want to move to Macau. Yeah, yeah, no, that Macau is really a grind. Uh, it's, it was Macau was pretty soft for me, by the way. I, I, I went there with the reasoning that you did of watching them play and thinking, wow, these guys are not very good, at least at the time. What year was this? Uh, like 2000, uh, maybe 16, 17, 18, 17, I think, 18. And do you, know how, do you remember how big the games were? 1K, 2K, HKD, and then sometimes 5K, 10K, HKD. Yeah. I mean, your decisions seem smarter. I think, I mean, the whole Macau poker room got super rich. Um, it was kind of predatory where, like, I know that everyone was around, like, the schedule of this one whale. Did you ever do the thing where you knew there'd be a game on Friday, so you had to play 24 hours in advance? <laughs> I did do that. I did do that. I did it once, and I was just like, I'm never doing this again. It's terrible. Oh, it is terrible, but listen, uh, there would be... In case people watching don't know, people would know that this guy was showing up at Friday at 10 in the morning, so the game would start 24 hours ahead of time. People would draw for seats, and then you'd play for 24 hours just so you could have a seat in the game the next day. Uh, you need to... like Everyone got super rich. But you need to include the fact that um, that, that person uh, got a special seat because of the way the Macau system works. He so automatically he gets a seat. So he just shows up and the game is starting. And I think it is a great system for it. I was about to say, yeah. Uh, I think it's a great system for poker and the room was run really well. Um, if I'm, I have played one 30 hour session and it was awful and I got delirious in the middle to the point where like, I couldn't figure out how much money was in the pot. Uh, I think it's just like super unhealthy for you. And so I'm 33 now. I used to have an easier time playing long sessions in like my mid twenties. I don't think I could do it anymore. Yeah. Um, depends on value you wanted, I guess. Although probably there's some line between there's some uh what is it some uh, cliche about balance and you know not not sacrificing your health which i happen to agree with um and which you seem to agree with kind of in a different direction with the charity or is that right um i think so poker is a zero-sum game which obviously means for you to win somebody has to lose I kind of thought there was more to life than just trying to accumulate dollars. Um, and at a certain point, I just kind of realized the amount of money that I was making, or not even always making, but the amount of money that I was prepared to wager and not especially care whether I win or lose. It was starting to be, I would bet mid six figures on something with some regularity and it's just like, oh, this is money that could that other people would have a huge need for. It could do a lot of good. Um, and not only just the altruistic element where 
it is my belief that those who are in a position to do so have a moral responsibility to help those in need. But even if you, if I were just concerned with my own best interests, I think my mental health is better, like having comfort about my place in the world by the fact that our charity has helped many thousands of people. Um, it's just been a great addition to my life and I don't especially miss the money that I've donated, you know? Um, I, I particularly agree with the fact that it's the, it's the responsibility of the people who are fortunate to help the uh, unfortunate um, from kind of a, it's a philosophical reason related to religion, actually. Well, it's actually just a philosophical reason. Um, but there's a, just this quote that's not obviously related by the supreme deity Krishna and the Hindu religion. Which I'll, I'll get to in a second. I, I I don't think that you resonate particularly much with these like esoteric uh, philosophies that are rel uh, related to religion. I remember that even there's a bit of a uh, difference in our incentive uh, for doing charity. That's interesting to me. Um, and yeah, because it, I remember it like you. Yeah, as you said, it makes you feel really great about the whole act of. Uh, giving and you felt bad before what do you, I remember you told me you felt bad that, uh, you, you know, as a poker player, you weren't doing anything. Uh, you were like taking from people's taking money from people and like not doing much else. Uh, I, I had different reasons for, for doing the, the charitable stuff. Um, like I said, I found it interesting and, um, yeah, I think for a lot of people, it will be kind of an interesting addendum to give and feel that, you know, that positive emotion that comes from it, whereas they may not necessarily have it. Do you think so? I think there are studies that suggest um, acts of generosity and charity are good for the brain. So yeah, um, I think it I have had issues with depression in the past and I was very pragmatic about trying to get through it. And one of the things I came across was, oh, charity might be good for the brain. So that was definitely a big part of my motivation. Um, and I feel like I personally feel a lot of satisfaction over the fact that the charity has done so well and also just from like a problem problem solving standpoint it's been a interesting thing to tackle over the years um so yeah for me personally it's been great and I, kind of ironically i think the world where i've given a chunk of money to charity i have accumulated more dollars than in the version of my life where i hadn't where I get better gambling opportunities for being known as the charity guy, or like I got turned onto Bitcoin after one of my charity drives where hmm. someone, and I put some money into Bitcoin at $1,100 and it's gone up a bunch. Um, getting random outs like that over the years. Um, 
have just like those situations have come about, you know? Um, let me, there's a few good topics here. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that the, I would agree also with my experience with charity, at least on the whole, that it's uh, led to more beneficial situations in particularly, well, more intangible ones for me. Um, it's made me more interesting, I would think, for most people. And uh, it's opened up a lot of doors in all sorts of directions. You would be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but I think a lot of the audience would be surprised at how many people connect over this idea of giving back and how many people actually do want to, because that surprised me. I didn't expect that. Uh, as far as making money, I think eventually it does lead down that path because people generally want to help people that are trying to help people make sense, right? Um, I haven't directly experienced much of that exactly, but uh, I've more like experienced the value in between that or value that may lead to that, I should say. That's a better way of putting it. I think you mentioned people want to help. And I think part of the reason that my charity has done so well, people definitely don't want to feel like suckers and people are complicated about giving to charity. So the fact that people feel confident that my organization, Double Up Drive, will vet these charities and tell them like any of these are good bets, send your money here. Um, I think that's part of the reason it is successful. Um, I forgot the second, you want to- The second uh, one, uh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. The second one I'll get back to later because it's a bit of a tangent. Um, yeah. So, I actually want to ask you about that uh, is how did you manage to raise money because to raise so much, because you raised really a pretty impressive amount. I didn't even realize you were like that. I knew you were successful at it, but not that successful. I, I want to say it's 26 million, but I don't know off the top of my head, which I should, but I don't. Okay. And I don't really even a hundred percent understand how it works. Like who is it that's matching the charity donations? Um, so the way that it started the first year when I was just like, oh, charity is good for the brain. Okay, I like animals. I'll do an, uh, um, there's this organization called the Humane League, which does animal welfare. And I saw that they were doing a matching challenge. So it's like, oh, they have a matching challenge. So everything that gets donated will get doubled. I, if I donated 25K, and then use the internet to double another 25K. My 25 gets doubled by the internet and then doubled by this other guy. So it becomes 100,000. And then on top of that, my 25K, let's just say I save 10,000 on my taxes. So out of pocket, it only cost me 15,000 and led to 100,000 getting raised. So that put the idea that the model works. And then, um, over a couple of years of doing it on like that scale, I had a good year gambling. I donated 175,000 publicly. And then just people started seeing, Dan, I like what you're doing. And this year, uh, I believe this was 2016, Martin Crowley uh, was, um, sent me a million dollars being like, hey, I am very busy with football this time of year, but if you could run the matching for me, here's a million dollars. And then ever since I've been managing 
outside money, for the most part, it's people who just reach out to me um, who like what we're doing. And I think they appreciate how easy it is for them. And I take a lot of the work away. Um, I had a million dollar crypto donation this year from someone whom I don't actually even know his real name. His Twitter persona is Light Crypto. If you've ever seen it, he's a technical analysis guy who I'm under the impression is like an unbelievably good trader. Um, so I, that's kind of a long-winded way of just saying mostly just by word of mouth and getting by being in the mix and being the person who puts together these drives and having done it multiple years in a row, people have confidence in my ability. Um, okay. Some of it are people, are professional gamblers, some poker players, some DFS players. And I think the next step for us, obviously crypto is just outrageously big stakes and people are making a lot of money. I could see that being the next avenue of our drive getting bigger. Uh, so a few things, we've got some wildly different approaches and reasons for doing things. Um, I actually was thinking to, well, my understanding is these like parties, uh, Amphar and all that, these things raise tons of dollars. Sorry, what was the, what kind of parties? Parties. Like, um, oh, you said, amp, what was the word? You, you described it as a thing. Uh, more like like fancy parties uh, okay. with high quality people um, and uh, high class people, I should say. Uh, like these things can raise a lot of money. And my personal plan to try to take this, I happen to have uh, a partner that's been involved in, in the party business and has been very, very successful for like 25 years in the charity business. Uh, and um. I suspect I, I can create this myself. And in this go, this also opens up a lot of doors of tangible value or intangible value, but I haven't proven this yet. So this is my personal idea. It was a wildly different direction. Uh, I have a suspicion that people, that people also like the idea of their money being matched as well from talking to you, but it's really hard to say. Um, but I have a lot of evidence that strongly indicates that matching works. There's a lot of data, both from give directly that they've sent me and in my own experience, like we had some challenges like two years ago and I was considering throwing in the towel. Cause like, let's just pretend there's a universe where Joe gives 25,000 to charity every year. And so does Bill. If they both donate the money to charity, which they would have done anyway, the number on my spreadsheet goes up, but no extra good is actually done. Mm -hmm. um, I was concerned that that was a possibility, like a thing that was happening. And when we were going through challenges, the thought crossed my mind of like, oh, maybe we'll just throw in the towel. And, but no, we, the matching, I'm very confident that the matching premise works. I get a lot of people who email me every year saying, this is the only time of year that I give money to charity. Here's $10,000. Thank you so much. Um, I think there's a lot of data that suggests matching challenges are very effective. Uh, but sorry to interrupt, please continue. Okay, well, that's interesting that we just had two totally different perspectives. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had the idea of making charity fun. 
which it feels like when, when you're thinking of charity, well, parties are an obvious way to make it fun. And then like-minded people combine and the intangible value is right there, bringing these people who are um, of similar mindset together uh, and like they'll find more friends or whatever. And also the whole idea of charity, which is why I'm supporting yours uh, a lot at the moment. And I personally donated yours. I believe I donated a hundred thousand dollars. Yes, you did. That was awesome. I think it was last March. Yeah. Or is it two years ago? It was a couple of two years ago. I remember it. Uh, I've had some interesting, an interesting two years. I, a couple things. So I personally like the idea of public giving, even though karma and all that is suggests to not give for the sake of, you know, validation or whatever, which sure, I I, I can understand that. But like, if you publicly give, it's infectious in that it it can create, um, how do you say, a uh, critical mass system, hypothetically, where, you know, more people hop on board. And that that's what intrigued me is the scalability of the situation. Um, and yeah, it's interesting that you match things. I wonder if they can be matched further. So I will just say, I don't believe in karma in the energetic, like, uh, energetic sense. I think generally doing good will often lead to more good things happening to you. But like in this sense of saying whether or not I give publicly or privately affecting my karma, just my belief is that I don't think that's how life works. Um, but I also think giving money publicly is proven to encourage other people. The fact, mostly what my charity is, is don't I donate money publicly to certain causes and I encourage other people to join me. So I, I would guess that the total of my donations over like the last nine years is somewhere around $2 million. Mm-hmm. The fact that I've been public about my donations is significantly more impactful than the, the $2 million. Interesting. Okay. Like my whole organization only works because I did it publicly. So I think when you see arguments about like, oh, so-and-so is only donating money so they feel good about themselves. Like I want to roll my eyes to be like, so what? Someone's doing this thing to feel good. Like what's the problem with that? Um, well, I think there are ways that you could donate money and be kind of obnoxious about it or rub it in people's faces. But I also think you could do it in a, in a tasteful way that, and by doing it publicly, like you and I are public figures and we have followings, like because Double Up Drive existed, this guy donated a million dollars last year who had never donated to charity before. Mm-hmm. It might just be a lifelong person who donates to charity. That's just like a huge impact, you know? I feel like that action alone will shut up a lot of haters or at least should, I mean, it's like a fact, you know? Um, a couple things. So I had another thought, but the first thing is uh, I want to mention that there's a couple missing pieces in my mind, at least to uh, a hypothetical scalable situation. But we'll get to that in a second. 
Um, I am now able to create some kind of logical argument for the existence of karma. I struggled with that one for a while, uh, but particularly on the condition that there's such a thing as an eternity, but I was also able to create multiple arguments for that, like beyond death, um, or more precisely actions carrying over beyond death, uh, which I think would be compelling for some people to give back, knowing that life continues afterwards. Um, but that's kind of a step beyond. I, uh, I built my charity primarily because of a philosophy and a need for sort of a purpose. Uh, it helps me in that, that uh, aspect is like, I'm doing this for like a guided purpose. Did you have any particular philosophy under the, bit, under the formation of your, the double up drive? Or was it just, you know, out of a kind of a passion project, I guess? I think it just kind of seemed like the natural next step where when it was a small project, it was just me and one volunteer and a spreadsheet. And then it was like me and, and then it got a little bit bigger for that. And then we had a couple people just um, that would help us with it. And about one year ago, our organization, Double Up Drive, partnered with The Life You Can Save. Um, are you familiar with Peter Singer? I don't know him very well. Uh, he's a philosopher, one of the more famous philosophers in the world, and he's written a oh. bunch of stuff about like why it's a moral thing to give money to charity. Mm-hmm. And actually, many years ago, before I started giving money to charity, I read one of his articles uh, titled uh, The Child in the Pond or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And it really resonated with me. Um, the premise is, imagine you see a kid drowning in a small pond. Yes. You're going to save him, of course. Yeah. Now imagine that you're wearing a $3,000 suit and he's drowning in that pond. <clears throat> um, you're still going to jump in the water and save him every time. <laughs> I was waiting to see what you said there. I was like, what say? <laughs> well, it depends on the fabric of the suit. You know, maybe if it's, no, I'm just kidding. Of course you jump in and you save him. Um, and the idea is just because the kid isn't literally in front of you, $3,000 will always save somebody's life. And the imagery for me was really like, wow, this money that I don't especially have a use for, will literally prevent somebody um, who would die, allow them to keep living. So that was really interesting. Um, so two drives ago, we were going through um, some huge challenges with Double Up Drive, where basically I thought, I think we have gotten to be too big for the way that we were currently being run. And Peter's organization sent me an email about like, hey, why don't you fundraise for us? And during the call, I was just kind of like, plot twist, Um, you guys have a whole team and you are already established and you already have the infrastructure in place. What if y'all help me with the logistics of doing these drives? And they were like, well, that's crazy and we didn't see this coming, but it might well be a very good idea. I like it. They got back to us (laughs) and um, we've been partnered ever since. Um, And I have to, they've been wonderful to work with. And it's, so we've, 
it's been a big step in in like professionalism and like we have like a marketing team now or like when the uh there are prof- instead of just being like volunteers of people who want to do good mm-hmm. we have professional people at specific things handling it and it, i think it is very cool how it went full circle like i read his article 10 years ago and now our organizations are partnered that is kind of crazy yeah that's a kind of a poetic a cute poetic story of the magic of I mean, you don't, I don't know you, I knew you don't really believe in magic, but I'm going to make you believe. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Or else. (laughs) Or else. Um, uh, That's kind of the magical, yeah, that's a magical thing. Uh, There's um, some kind of magic going on in the charity uh, stuff so far, at least it appears for me. Don't wait for that. We'll wait for that. I I want to provide a totally different philosophy to add to the uh, to the mix. So let's go back to Supreme Deity Krishna. He wrote. He said something that seems a little. It doesn't seem very obvious. Let's put it that way. He said that basically the whole universe. He by the way he represents essentially the whole universe and everything and all the you know uh basically is the whole universe in in the hindu religion and he said that anyone the whole universe is essentially like a garden and that anyone who doesn't water or give back to the garden and takes from it is a thief um which you think like what you don't even if you do nothing you're still a thief well even if you do nothing the universe gave you something and there's a there's a parallel in poker world, in my opinion, uh, that transcends money and can defeat the idea of enlightenment or not enlightenment, excuse me, but that's an interesting topic that I like. Transcend the idea of entitlement is what I meant to say. Um, so if you look at the dynamic, uh, if you involve in, if you include to currencies emotional currency of the uh, of the poker room that you're dealing with. Um, if like a professional is taking from the poker world uh, money and also taking and not giving anything back in the currency of emotion that perhaps uh, thrill-seeking gamblers are looking for, then they're taking for the whole ecosystem on the whole. And I mean, you can see what that's done to the games. Um, and the distinction I want to give on a grander scale is you can take in all kinds of ways that also hurt that aren't just monetary and basically uh, to open eyes to the possibility that the world cannot be sustained unless basically people keep on giving. And if people continuously gave, it would lead to a much, much better world. At least this is the general theme of why I, uh, did all the did this charity or had this charity does this make any sense to you so i think what you are saying is that we should leave things as good or better than it was when we got it yeah and i think of course that is correct yeah but also to be conscientious of um a couple things to add to that to not leave them at least as good is actually a bad thing um is actually to do nothing is 
immoral. And this goes back to what you're saying earlier is that if you're put in the situation where you're more fortunate, it's your responsibility to give back. Um, it's the same thing in disguise, in my opinion. And also to open people's eyes to the possibility that there's many different ways to give that aren't just in terms of money, uh, et cetera. Do you agree with me or no? I generally agree with you. I kind of think everyone has like their own balancing act where, or like for instance, the thing in giving that comes up, should you prioritize the area where you live or is it better to help more people abroad? And I don't think it's strictly, uh, or, and then even similarly, what about your family members? If you prioritize helping them versus strangers, I think that's valid and everyone has to make a, a personal choice for them. But generally, I, I mean, I agree with you that trying to do good is an important thing. Um, yeah. Uh, there's a bit of a nuance here that I have to, that I feel like is important to point out, which is, I believe everyone should have a uh, free choice. Um, it's just that uh, for one's own benefit, it's most advantageous to um, pay it forward. Let's put it that way. And it's for the collectives, the whole grand universe's uh, benefit. It is most advantageous to pay it forward as much as possible. Um, and even, even in one, one's own self, but I think it, that's not that, not that clear, logically speaking. Um, yeah. And as far as your example, there's all sorts of like, you know, like what is the optimal good? I mean, I personally have thought about this stuff quite a lot. Um, in your family example, I would say, uh, I mean, it's basically up to people what they want to do. Right. Uh, now, I, in the family example, like obviously, it, I think it's fairly obvious to say that helping strangers, which you have no connection to, is doing more good than helping your family, which would return in any way. In terms of like net good on the world, totally. Mm -hmm. uh, but life isn't so black and white. And then, and also, like I spend money on myself all of the time in a way that isn't like super, I, if, I, if I was trying to maximize the amount of good in the world, I wouldn't need to eat $14 pieces of Japanese uni, right? Yeah. But I do it all the time. Um, yeah. On a similar note, helping your cousin pay for college or whatever the case may be isn't the most optimal thing but i think there's like a time and a place for doing both and i would be hesitant to say that there is a a right answer for everyone the way that i sort of view these things i imagine like if you have an investment portfolio mm -hmm. maybe the biggest thing should be stock, say the S&P 500, you know, 
And then you have like your smaller things that are more speculative investments. With charity, the things that I know are the most dollar efficient will be like the biggest pieces of the pie. And then, and then I will have like other things that I sprinkle in that are smaller, like pet projects or friends or whatever the case may be. I, I agree with you on the charity side of things for how to distribute your money. At least that appeals to me, but not actually for the uh, financial side of things. I think there's more uh, nuance than it would appear. Um, if that makes sense. I think what you're saying from a financial perspective optimizes for making the most amount of money possible, but not for the most life utility possible, depending on what people want to do, if that makes sense. It seems funny how at like every major crossroads of viewpoints, you and I are total opposite. Like you were talking about how everyone should have free will. I'm not confident that we do have free will and I don't think we need to go on that tangent, but it was just another example of us just <laughs> seeing the world through a completely different lens. That is kind of funny. Yeah, I find, yeah, that is really funny. And by the way, about the free will thing, I would say, well, I would have said that it depends on the perspective and that was my original uh, thought and there's truth to that, but it appears that time is a little bit more complicated than that. And, and it's almost, it almost works a bit more like poker to some extent, but even you know now with the inclusion of string theory, apparently time is a bit of an illusion as well. Um, but that being said, it appears that time in particular works, I don't know how, how much, if you agree or not, but basically it appears from my perspective and what I've read that if you look at the courses of history, that there's these major things that were meant to happen like roughly in a certain time zone, it's more like it was a whole sketch. Uh, and it was like a, like a loose plan of sorts, but there's these major points that were like 100% to happen basically uh, at some point in time. And then there's between all that kind like of- What would be an example of thing that was 100% to happen at some point? The existence of Aristotle all countries or all rough regions had their own Aristotles or so, of some point or, or some version of that. There's, or other like grand mathematicians or various geniuses or, you know, industrial ages, et cetera. In fact, uh, Africa was on uh, pace with the other continents for a long time until the other continents um, basically just like completely fucked Africa over and that was why Africa, it kind of fell off the map. Um, and I believe there might be geo, geography, excuse me, some geographical reasons as well, but I'm not 100% sure. But I know the other, that, that, that other historical timeline is a bit of a fact. Hmm. This is a topic that I would say that I am quite uneducated about. I've read basically no philosophy. I have a smart friend who recently was arguing uh, telling me that time isn't linear. And I kind of, it's just a thing that I can't really grasp that concept. And it seems when you say like time is an illusion and then you brought up string theory, I'm gonna be honest, I don't even know, it's, I, I've heard of string theory. I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. um, I would be interested to know more about it. And if someone could recommend me like, a documentary I could watch discussing 
time that might open up my mind, that'd be great. But I don't feel I'm in a place where I could uh, contribute intelligently. But fuck, man, it does really seem like time is linear. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what's weird. Um, that's about the extent of what I know about it. Uh, I think that that there's some kind of like way to establish karma in that, but I don't really know how that works. I don't know one thing about string theory, man. I'm not a theoretical physicist. Uh, I will also request any uh, string theory uh, video to make it simple. <laughs> I, I don't know much about string theory beyond that, other than basically the the our perception kind of gives it seems tied to the universe's existence seems tied to the existence of life which is kind of compelling also let's see like the only two things i know about string theory i could have imagined you being a physics buff uh i w when i was in high school i thought i was going down that or when i was in uh college i thought i might go down that route but no it didn't turn out that way. Like poker was the thing. And you had $3, $6 to play. Like you had to beat up on these, your, your enemies on the internet. Yeah. Well, the competition appealed to me more. There's not really much competition in, in physics. Uh, so unless you're like, I mean, not much money in it either. It seems like you always had a very good feel for poker. Like um, while you clearly had a good understanding of what the theory of poker it does seem like you did a really good job of picking up like in the moment is this guy bluffing this time do you agree with that um there's some truth to that but in, uh with that i'll explain that basically people are quite predictable or the majority of people are quite predictable in in uh the majority of situations um and it's like really hard for people to get around their psychology so knowing that there's uh i think it gave some kind of edge i mean there are some really distinct patterns i can tell you that much um i, I think that my intuition for like how kinds of people were bluffing was a bit better how was uh how did you go about that sort of thing was it purely theoretical for you or did you have any intuition or was it uh i mean it's very different from chess i guess or i don't know maybe chess has bluffs in it too so maybe 11 years ago i did this guided meditation and it was one of the more intense experiences of my life um i would say felt kind of similar to a mushroom trip where I felt like I had the experience of my, of grieving, grieving my dad's death for the first time, which had happened five years prior. Um, huh. so I got very, in go ahead. <laughs> it's so I got very into meditation where I would say almost every day for over 10 years, I've done it basically like definitely over 90% of days uh, by a bunch. So I would, I think I would just, and this was a little bit ahead of the curve, 
So in 2012, I had a mindfulness pre uh, presence before a lot of the people I was competing against. And I think I would be able to do a good job of say hiding my life tells or just being like really present in the moment. And I think that was hugely beneficial for being comfortable in the moment. Um, I would feel quite comfortable deviating from theory. Uh, basically, I would feel very present and it wasn't like a live tell thing, but just like a general aura of is this person comfortable or not? And I think I navigated that path very well. And hmm. if I had to say, I would guess my like meditation was hugely beneficial for that. Huh. I haven't had those benefits of, with meditation. I didn't pick up many spidey senses exactly. I stopped getting angry and freaking out though. That that was kind of nice. <laughs> I have heard some insane stories of you freaking out at the poker table. Now I like almost don't get angry. But for the most part, like it's kind of pretty rare. I would say that I, I rarely do as well. Um, when I play racket sports, I become a total tilt monkey. What? <laughs> uh, and I kind of love it that I just like let my, I have these opportunities to go and like normally I kind of have my, my shit together. I have broken multiple paddles playing pickleball where I just like smashed into a fence. Uh, I kind of love having that outlet, you know? That's so funny. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it must work very differently for me. Like if I play a, d a different game where I have like no stake in it at all, I mostly just act like an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> mostly just say a bunch of goofy stuff. I never, I never get mad, or almost never get mad, and just even when I get my ass kicked. So I think I'm just. It's like, oh, I've hit really good shots before. Like I know what it feels like. I could do it sometimes, and I just expect to do it. So then, when you try to hit like a put away, like when you try to hit a winner and you just hit it into a net, it's like, you know what you're supposed to do? You just fail to execute. Uh, um, yeah, well, that's what, what made me mad in poker. That would drive me insane. That was that was why I would act so crazy is because it would be for like $50,000 or $100,000. And I'd be like, oh man, I just torched $100,000. Conceptually, the idea in poker that, well, in tournament poker, more often than not, you're gonna lose. And I just kind of did a good job of really getting ingraining the thought of you're going to play and you're going to do your best. And sometimes you're going to win and sometimes you're not. But it, and of course, it's not always like this, but the element of luck is so prevalent in poker that it doesn't really get my competitive juices flowing in that way. And of course, there's variance in tennis, where if you and I are similar, maybe I'll win 60% of the time. But you kind of, in poker, the luck is so obvious and like immediate and you feel it. In, in tennis, it's just like, of course, I should beat this guy, you know? And then that result doesn't happen and it's just rage. I think in poker, I, I, uh, I feel it, but it feels like a should control it somehow. It's strange. Um, I think there's a lot. I had a great memory of you playing poker against Bryn Kenny, where he called you on a four flush board 
mm-hmm. and you were just berating him and he just responds with oh i thought you would bluff with these hands and he like listed all of the hands that you might bluff with and then you reflected for a moment and then you just stopped and you're like you are right i was over bluffing that spot and it was unlike anything i've ever seen uh how, how was it unlike anything you've ever seen you were like tilted and then you just immediately turned it off and you were like Bryn you were right and I was wrong and it was done <laughs> yeah I guess it's weird in that way um I, it was an awesome thing to watch well, thank Jungle, you. you need to play more tournaments you're very entertaining I'm coming back for some tournaments okay I'm playing the main for the first time in years I'm bringing the magic um, back. There's too many players in the main. I want to compete against. And these high rollers, we have like a one in seven chance of being at the same table. I want to play against you. Um, you Maybe it'll happen this time. Play. Yeah. Remember that we played that like 250K? We, I mean, we've had some good high stakes moments against each other. You were being very silly in the 250K uh, tournament in Macau, the super high roller bowl. Uh, that was that was great. Are you coming to Madrid? I am not. Um, I would have loved Madrid? to. I feel like this is a major life blunder. So, um, I do important. really love the Triton events, and the I'm going to Zambia. Um, <laughs> before they announced the the Triton tournament, um, one of my favorite charities to work with is called Strong Minds. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, I, you said at forty minutes it's going to like stop recording. Do we or do we have to worry about that? Or you're on top of it? It appeared that I lied. Okay, well that's fantastic news. Um, <laughs> we'll keep going. Uh, so one of my favorite organizations I've worked with is called Strong Minds. Um, given I've had my own issues with mental health in the past, I'm really passionate about the idea of helping other people. And in fact, I was once going with a challenging time. I found it very comforting that the idea that my own issues with mental health have like led to me starting this charity Hmm. and helping many thousands of people get over theirs. So the idea that there was something bigger than just me, I found very comforting. Um, A couple of years ago, I asked Strong Minds what their three biggest goals for their year was. And as number one, they said they wanted me to see the facility that um, they were able to build partially due to double up drives involvement. And I was very touched by the thought. Hmm. So I decided that this year, my schedule is kind of open and my motivation for poker at this moment in time isn't super high. Um, I've just been doing it for a long time and I am to use your word, I want to experience more magic in my life. And I'm hopeful that going to visit this charity in Zambia would be a way to do that. So I'm going to spend a few days uh, with the team there in Zambia, seeing uh, the facilities and all of that. And then a good friend and I are going to spend a week going on a safari to check out hippos and lions and whatever the other cool animals are. All right, well, so that's, that's going to be awesome, and I'm super excited. The downside is that I have to miss EPT Monte Carlo and the Triton tournament, but uh, there will be other poker tournaments, 
And how often do you get to go on safaris? All right. Well, that is awesome. I'm, uh, I'm happy for you. Um, I will say the safaris, there are quite a few safaris, so you know. Uh, but it sounds awesome. Shout out to Strong Minds for helping solve this complicated problem of depression and uh, helping you uh, in multiple ways, it sounds like. And uh, yeah, I, I did in fact want to ask, ask about depression because I myself suffered some depression relatively recently. I've had it on two different periods. One, when I was 17, uh, I was very depressed. Uh, and even recently I experienced uh, periods of severe depression and I was trying to help someone, I, or at least ideas to help someone get out of depression, but it just was like no fucking ball. Uh, part of the issue with depression, I remember, was when you feel it, you you just don't even want to do anything. You, it's like it's like your mind like turns against you, if that makes sense. So I'm really kind of curious what strategies got you out of it. So I think it's a good idea to fill your calendar up with uh, with things that are good for your mental health. And if um, let's pretend you're having a bad mental health day, you probably won't have the energy to like the idea of being like, I'm going to go hang out with my friends and do X, like this activity that I love, but you probably won't have the energy to schedule it. Um, I, but if it's already on your calendar and all you have to do is show up, you might be more inclined to like go through the motions. And I think that sort of thing will help you. Um, I, I have been very good and proactive about a willingness to try new things. And then if a thing I know works for me, I keep doing it. Um, I think therapy has been very helpful and it's a thing I would recommend. I probably everyone should do it. Um, uh, I think my mind and body is very tied. And if I'm physically active, that is often like, if you can get into your body, you're getting out of your head, you know? Um, I play around with hot and cold therapy. Like, let's just pretend I wake up and I feel anxious on a given morning. Hmm. Uh, I have a pool in my backyard. It's pretty cold. You jump in the pool and you hit the water. For that moment, you're not thinking about whatever's making you anxious. You're just like, oh boy, it's really cold. And then you get out and you get a flush of endorphins. Um, I think it's a matter of a willingness to try new things and just seeing what works for you. Um, I meditate every day. I journal. I try to, I prioritize a good night's sleep almost ahead of everything else. And I think that is huge. Um, quality time with loved ones. Okay. Uh, the, the jump of the pool thing. Who would have thought? I guess just when you're depressed, just jump in the pool. I would say that's more of an anxiety thing oh. than a depression thing. But like, I also i I am fortunate enough that I haven't felt depressed in a while. 
Um, I don't see any reason while conceptually it might not work. For me, the reason I thought depression was like, let's just pretend you're feeling kind of sluggish on a given day. If you knew in two days would be over, you just deal with it, you know? Sure. But I, for me, what I think was such a bitch about depression was there wasn't necessarily any optimism that in the future it was gonna get better, you know? It felt so permanent, like, oh my God, what if this is my new reality? Oh, you mean it was um, like not, not like on and off, it was constant. It was on and I didn't know when it was gonna go off, you know? Oh, really? And I wasn't, I didn't, I suppose right now I have like a deep rooted optimism that everything is ultimately gonna work out okay. And previously, I very much didn't have that belief. Um, That's kind of interesting. I, yeah, my internal narrator used to be very harsh with myself. Like if I mess up, I like the voice in my head would just be very rude to myself. Like, oh, you fucking idiot. How can you blah, blah, blah. Um, and now... I'm very patient with myself, you know, and I'm like accepting of my flaws. Uh, it was a long journey, but being much more accept, accept, accepting has made a, a big difference. Um, um, that's a bit of, it's surprising of a mindset from a guy that it, it just sounds like such an a, a emotional thing to have integrated, but you know, you strike me as a guy that's very uh, rational and it's just surprising to have that kind of mindset. Up until I was 25 years old, I definitely was operating under the assumption that I was an idiot. Um, I wasn't particularly good at school and like, sure, I was like a fine chess player, but there are people better than me. And then it's like, okay, I'm good at poker. Um, I sometimes with certain obvious tasks, I could sometimes be a bit of a knucklehead. Like I have terrible, terrible spatial reasoning and I am not very, I previously would focus on my flaws. And then actually at Burning Man, I took a bunch of MDMA and I just had this like realization that, <laughs> oh yeah, of course you're not an idiot. You were the number one poker player in the world. Like by definition, you're not stupid. Um, and I kind of just like had the feeling of like, oh, I am like love and appreciating and accepting myself for the first time. And when I sobered up, it's not like the, that feeling went away, you know, it kind of stayed there. And that night was a lot of the, creation of double up drive where I really internalized like, oh, I was, gr I'm, I'm a really great poker player. Probabilistically, I'm much more likely than the average person to make a big difference in the world. Like if I became great at one thing, I could probably likely be great at this other thing. Let's see what I could do. Right. Uh, and I will just add the caveat that drugs are very serious business and you should be informed and take responsible amounts and test what you're doing and educate yourself. Um, like for, but for me, I would say they were an instrumental part of the journey. Well, it sounds like uh, they were a different kind of uh, danger, you could say, danger of making a difference. 
<laughs> um, sure, but I don't, don't want to like trivialize the effects that like like taking acid in a non-safe environment or just taking it recklessly being like, I don't really know what I'm taking. Oh, of course. A very bad idea. Or if you have like bipolar or schizophrenic tendencies, as in like, for me, things worked out well, but I also will say I was very mindful about the way that I was approaching it. And like, I would start with like small amounts and dip my toes with, and I dip my toes in. And I think I did the groundwork of, like of putting myself in a situation to succeed before before uh, I got there. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Obviously, don't do too many drugs, guys. Not going to be good. Uh, oh, and I wanted to add to that is that, um, and this surprised me, is that um, is that how do I say it? Uh, it's actually most beneficial when you make a mistake not to chastise, ch chastise yourself. Scientifically speaking, it's better to forgive yourself than it is to chastise yourself, um, which I which surprises me. I would have thought like, oh, you have to really beat it in you that you made a mistake, um, but apparently not. Easier said than done. I think forgiving yourself but like everyone would always choose to forgive themselves or others. But I agree that like thinking positively is significantly better than thinking negatively. But like, I imagine you sometimes, it's not always so easy for you, right? Uh, no, it depends on the context. Yeah, it depends on the context, really. I'm actually, I'm curious how to actually transform that emotional process because it's happened to quite a bit of me internally um but it seems like well why not continue the the pattern and have it happen even more so because um i mean i also happen to be more negative but i can see all the benefits not negative excuse me but more on the rational side but i can see rationally all the benefits of um of like a positivity that I would have not, uh, well, I would have not only appreciated, but also been kind of annoyed by. And it's like, well, rationally speaking, I should like change my emotional configuration to be more like these people to some extent. Um, or even like, should that be the strategy? I, I don't know, stuff like that I think about, if that makes sense. I mean, I would just say like generally, I think a positive mindset makes a huge difference and is like, for me, it was very challenging and then eventually I got there, but now I'm significant. Like I, I would say now I have like the deep belief that everything is going to work out when previously I didn't. So like, I, yeah, I think it makes a huge, huge difference. I agree, uh, somehow. Um, getting other people to see that is, uh, I don't really understand how to make that happen on a grand scale, but that's something that would be 
that's something that would be an interesting positive difference to add. Um, go ahead. Uh, I was just thinking that we were coming up on about an hour and you were suggesting that the optimal, we are approaching, or we are slightly past the optimal length of a, a, a podcast. So yeah. I would say if you, if you have anything else that you'd wanted to get to, I'd say we, we could totally do it. Yeah. But also we if there's have... a good reception to this, I would be more than happy to do this again for round two. Okay. Well, uh, we'll, wrap it up in a second actually i i can't go much much longer myself um with the charity stuff do you have any aspirations of making it bigger or making it scale in some kind of way i would prefer for it to be bigger um if it stayed as it is i would be thrilled I would prefer for it to be bigger than not. Um, if I knew how to make it bigger, I would. Like uh, there are a lot of challenging things where scaling is hard and I don't especially know how to do it. Um, I'm not, for the most part, I just, go out and do what I think needs to be done. And we have like a, a good team and everyone's doing their best. Um, I kind of think that's all you could do. And whatever happens, like I, I feel confident that we are putting in our best effort and whatever happens, happens. Um, I think when I started the charity, I wasn't always doing it for the right reasons. And I got a little bit too attached to like, Ooh, this last year we raised 1.7 million. We need to pass that. Um, like, and also there are ways where you could like have inflated numbers. And I'm, I'm actually quite happy where we partnered last year with the life you can save. And I kind of had the feeling of like, Oh no, now we're going like corporate, uh, we're going to have to like do all these tricks to, to like cook the books and make it look good. And there was none of that. Um, okay. Well, I, that all sounds like bullshit to me. Oh, and we totally have never done that, but I just assumed that if you're like a perf other organizations that you have to like do things to make yourself look better. And there was none of that, uh, which I'm thrilled about. Um, I will just say, if we get better, that's great. Um, and if we get bigger, rather, I would be thrilled. Um, but if it were, if it were as simple as just like choose to be bigger, we would have done it already, you know? Well, it seems like kind of the elephant in the room, the first one anyway, uh, at least in my mind, is why not, why double up? Why not triple up? Why not quadruple up? So like if you donate $100 to animal charities, why don't I give $400? Um, well, does it have to be from you? Or I, I understood it was from... Well, oh, because we could only get so much of the matching pool. And actually, if we can get people who donate at one-to-one... Like, if we were going that route, 
I would say the optimal number is like rather than the double up drive, maybe the real optimal amount is like the 1.5 X challenge, where if oh. you donate a hundred thousand to animals, I donate 50. And that means, but um, doubling up is kind of like one-to-one -one is a slightly arbitrary money, but it's like, it's clean and it, I don't know. I think it just resonates with people. Um, okay. I think there is rarely a situation where somebody is like, huh, all right. I was, no, I think there are people who would donate if we were tripling up and not doubling up, but it comes down to how much money you could have in the matching pool. And I just don't really know how to encourage people to donate any more than I currently do. Um, I have a couple ideas, actually, that... Uh, Please. Well, two ideas. The first one that's also kind of obvious is uh, combine this with something like parties or something else that's intangible. Because apparently parties are a really effective way to raise. Uh, I have always been worried about, like, throwing an extravagant, extravagant event and then having, like, rolling your eyes to be like, oh my goodness, you spent $200,000 on this party. And like, I'm quite confident that all money involved with Double Up Drive is efficient. I do think parties would be a good next step. And a friend of a friend is a huge like A-list musician who has agreed to perform if I ever ran an event for him, as long as I went to his home city. And I haven't done it because it's a little bit intimidating to throw an event, like basically other than like provide booze and have music. I don't understand where the fundraising aspect comes in exactly, but I do agree with you. I think it would be a good next step and I kind of just don't know how to do it. Okay. Um, and just generally getting people in the room together who want to do good, I think is a good idea. Yeah. No, I think that's definitely one of the biggest ways to scale. Um, it's just... Have you run any events? I actually have. Uh, I have been the host of some of the biggest parties in London. Hmm. Do you think you would be confident if we were to put together a party in Atlanta that you could get people to show up and donate money? Not yet, but I want to make a trial uh, on a in Vegas, which I'm more confident about. I, it's it, I need it needs to be tried first, um, and I mean I'm confident in some of the people that I work with. They have experience in this exact area. Um, I mean I need to work on it a bit, but it may be possible. Well, this is on my radar of things to do. Also, it's just a lot of logistical stuff and planning. And I think it's a thing that ultimately should happen. I would prefer if somebody else did all of the work, but... Well, that's what you get other people for. Sure. I, don't, I guess I just don't have like a party guy. Right, right. I got that. Um... The delegation. I would be worried that your party guy 
would charge a bunch of money to do it, you know? That that I can confirm uh, is is not the case. Um, but okay, well then I think at some point we should uh, discuss this. All right, sure. Another idea um, is essentially to to involve like a different kind of uh, uh, how do you say competition is basically get. Uh, I'm not 100% confident on this, but uh, to basically create competitions of people uh, like trying to outdo each other, if you know what I mean. Like competition is really a pretty motivating thing, if that makes sense. I think that is a wonderful idea. And the thing that just jumped out at me is if we got like various NFTs have their own community and if we got a few different of them to agree to participate, we can be like, okay, competition, which of these four charities, oh, I'm sorry, which of these communities could raise the most money? Um, I think that would be cool and maybe it would uh, get some competitive juices flowing. All right. Well, I'm glad you like that idea too. Um, anything else? I, I actually really have to go. Uh, it's been great having you, but anything else you want to talk about before I go? Uh, I think this was wonderful. Um, and I had a lot of fun. I'd be happy to do it again. All right, sweet. Well, let's see what develops from here and look forward to playing you again on the tournament poker tables. Maybe it'll happen sooner than, uh, pretty soon. I hope so. You're a great enemy. <laughs> <laughs> formidable foe if you will <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to be a fierce uh, competitor all right well dan smith it's been great having you and uh yeah let's looking to more frenemy ships and uh, fierce competitions <laughs> i'm looking forward to it take care and be well all right see ya thank you for listening to this episode of winning the game of life tune in next week for another great episode of course Hit subscribe and follow Dan on Instagram at the Dan Cates.